where lust for a whole life and nothing but less makes people jump out of a comfortable pond into an unknown ocean. Welcome to that journey between the East and the West. Who says Rolling Stones don't gather moss? Hello everyone, I am Meenu Gupta, your host for the day, and I'm delighted to have you join me every week as amazing people share their incredible and inspiring life stories of straddling continents. Thank you. What is it like living in a country which is distinctly different from that of your parents? How similar and dissimilar are Hong Kong and Shanghai, though they are both in the East? What are the mistakes that Europeans often make when entering the Chinese or Hong Kong markets? These questions and many more will be answered today by our guest as we journey through her life. Meet Christina Kola Kolucha, a Hong Kong-born European with over two decades of experience in helping foreign investors enter the China and Hong Kong markets. Thank you for joining us today, Christina. Thank you, Mina, and thank you to all the listeners. I am curious about how you came to be in the eastern part of the world in the first place, which means how come your parents were in Hong Kong when you were born? Now that is a story. So let me give you a bit of background. I My father is German. Uh, my mother is French. And they have each individually different stories of how they came to Hong Kong. My father came on a two-year internship to Hong Kong which has now lasted over five decades. He arrived in Hong Kong in 1969, like I said, on a two-year internship, and that just evolved with him staying and eventually opening up his own business, which then my brother and I joined. My mother, on the other hand, was the daughter of a diplomat. So my grandfather was a vice consul of the French consulate in Hong Kong. They had been living all over the Middle East, Asia, and ended up in Hong Kong. My mum worked, and lo and behold, the two of them met in a restaurant. And that's sort of how the story started. And they've never left. They're both retired there now. It's home. And um, my brother is also still living there. And uh, my sister and I have are now in Europe experiencing as Europeans what European life is actually like on a day-to-day basis and not just for summer holidays. So it's very interesting because when a European or let's say a person born to European say, okay, we're now living, experiencing the European life, that sentence is all, already by itself very interesting. Now, in the language of culture, you are a third culture kid or individual, as one calls them, for the audience listening in, third culture kids or third culture individuals are people who are raised in a culture other than their parents and also live in a different environment during a significant part of their child development years. They are typically exposed to a greater volume and variety of cultural influences than those who grow up in one particular cultural setting. So the first culture of such individuals refers to the culture of the country from which the parents originated. The second culture refers to the culture in which the family currently resides. And the third culture refers to the distinct culture these individuals 
develop on their own, which is sometimes a fusion and at times just actually has no connection to either of the other two cultures. Now, these are theories. Tell me your experience. What was it like growing up as a European living in Hong Kong? So when people ask me this, it's always very difficult to answer because I don't have a comparison. I only know what I know. So what was it like living in Hong Kong? I mean, it's all I knew. For me, that was home. I actually did not even know that my parents were expatriates in Hong Kong until I myself, in my 20s, moved to Shanghai and understood what the term expatriate was. Because Hong Kong was my home. These were my people. It didn't matter what color skin we had or what languages we were speaking. I never thought about it. It never came to my mind to think about it. Now, obviously, as I'm older and with media, I realize there's a difference between, you know, African-Americans, Europeans, you know, Chinese-born Americans. I understand the concept. I had no clue. I didn't even hear these concepts in the past. So how was it growing up in Hong Kong? I mean, I have European parents, but I'm in an environment where I'm a minority, right? I mean, the majority of people living around me are Chinese, and obviously they look different than I look. I'm blonde. When I was little, I had hair up to my bottom. It was unique. It was different. I went to an international school, though, so I didn't feel fully different because I had friends that were also white, that were American, European, Australian. But I have to say my best friends were those that were mixed. So my best friend from home, she's half Australian, half Japanese. Another one of my best friends was half German, half Hong Kong Chinese. And I make a differentiation because we just did. It was just automatic between Hong Kong Chinese, mainland Chinese, Taiwanese. I mean, we're very specific on what the other nationality is when we are talking about our friends. And it's just stuck with me that I continue to do that. So it was, you know, my closest girlfriends were of mixed races even, right? I don't know. It just was normal. I honestly didn't think twice about it. Difficulties arose in my youth predominantly because I was part of the Hong Kong national swimming team. And there was a little bit of politics in that, that for the organizers, they did not necessarily want to have a European being part of the national team. They wanted it to be authentic, Hong Kong Chinese being part of the team. So sometimes it was difficult to get chosen, even though I qualified right? Had the ID card, born and raised. All I knew was Hong Kong is my home. My patriotism was for Hong Kong. Never having lived in Germany or France in my entire life, going there for three weeks in the summer holidays. So one time per year. Can't tell me I was French or German. (laughs) Holidays are very different from living day to day. So that was where I started to realize I was different. I knew Hong Kong perhaps was not my home, but I was very lucky to have very supportive parents who pushed for my rights. And eventually I was chosen as part of the Hong Kong national team, was able to travel with the Hong Kong national team and and participate in global world events, competitions, which was absolutely phenomenal to represent my country because that's how I felt and still feel that it's part of my country. Again, it's hard to compare because I don't know in my youth what the differences were you know, spending three weeks in France and Germany in the summer, it's not the reality of those countries either. Cities are shut down. 
you don't have as much of the volume of people. So I, I can't really say that I knew where my parents were from either. Not really, not on the day-to-day basis. So it's, it was just home. That's nice. Actually, you've, you've um, clarified two more things for me. One, that theory is not theory from Wikipedia because there, and I was curious about it, when they mentioned that um, third culture individuals at times develop very strong ties with other third culture individuals. They have a very distinct, and it happens automatically, and which you just rightly said, I think it's more of a gut thing. So you probably identify more easily. And second thing you said was Hong Kong is home. That's what you knew. So that is nice, beautiful. And actually, that is how it would generally be where you were born and brought up, where you have your closest ties. That is where your heart is then, I gather. Well, my husband currently says that my heart should be wherever he is. (laughs) (laughs) We were having a family dinner once and somebody said to me with my parents there and my siblings there, Christina, where do you actually feel you're from? And I said, I'm from Hong Kong, but I have a German father and a French mother. Something I've, I've said on repeat my entire life. And she said, but you're not from Hong Kong. I said, well, yeah, I yeah. am. And then she said, you know, usually when I ask this question to people, I always ask them, where do you imagine Christmas? Because Christmas always has this homey feel to it. And I said, well, it's still Hong Kong. Because every single Christmas, was in Hong Kong and my grandparents would fly to Hong Kong for Christmas. My aunt would fly to Hong Kong for Christmas. So my image of Christmas is Hong Kong. It's home. It's where, even though it's very warm, we still put the fireplace on (laughs) to create an image. But that is where it's home. So you do make home wherever you eventually move to. But If you think back to the days, if somebody still asks me today, you know, where do you imagine Christmas to be? My favorite place for Christmas is is Hong Kong. Now, that's beautiful and sort of sums it all because they say home is where family is and where the traditions, where culture, traditions and food all come together. That is home. But I will say one thing about the whole third culture fusion. I am a fusion person. You know, I would just as well like to eat a French meal as a Chinese meal. And funnily enough, when I am sick, my go-to is Asian meals. So my husband, for example, when he's sick, he needs a bowl of pasta. When I'm sick, I need a bowl of rice (laughs) and a Chinese meal. And I don't really remember whether, you know, of course, my, my parents, my mom would cook congee for us which was just another form of porridge. It's just she couldn't find oats back in those days in Hong Kong. So she acclimatized us to congee, which is with rice. It's still a type of porridge texture. And so for me, that's what I believe when I'm sick, I go more for Asian. So I am this fusion kid in the end of the day who has acclimatized to living in Hong Kong. And I have taken a lot of that with me and encompassed that into my own family, even though we're not living in Hong Kong anymore. So I just want to say on that, on the whole point of the definition, I I do believe in this fusion aspect and bringing in that culture into your parents' culture in terms of how they were brought up. 
And now this is extended further from what you told me earlier. Now you are married to an Italian and you are currently now living not in Shanghai, but now you are living in Luxembourg and uh, you have two children. Question, they were born uh, in Shanghai. No, actually, one was born in Luxembourg and the other was born in Dubai, of all places. We've relocated several times for my husband's job and um, always had shorter stints in different locations. And being a very flexible wife, I gave birth to wherever we were at that moment in time. And so son was born in Luxembourg, daughter was born in Dubai. Now, that will be a very interesting. So if you are a third culture individual, question is, what would be your kids be? I mean, fourth culture individuals? I don't know. But my, my son actually came to me really within the last week. He's got Hong Kong Chinese kid in his class. He's also got two mainland Chinese kids in his class. And he came to me and said, Mama, I know I have, I know I was not born in Hong Kong. But because you were born in Hong Kong and you're from Hong Kong, does that mean I'm also kind of Chinese? And I didn't quite know how to answer that, particularly because COVID halted all of our visits back to my home. So this Christmas will be the first Christmas we spend in Hong Kong since 2018. And so for my children, it's a bit confusing in regards to where are they from? They know there's a difference between where they were born and what we are as a family unit, but there's still confusion. They're still, they're still getting their head around it. And we did a visit to Hong Kong in February, and my son is now convinced that he's a part Chinese because he could not believe how much he loved Chinese food, how much he loved foot massage, <laughs> and how he just acclimatized to the Hong Kong culture very fast. And I'm letting him have that belief because it's okay, you know, because I'm bringing part of that culture at home. We have Chinese meals at home. We, I cook Chinese or we go to the Chinese restaurant just because I want to bring, bring a piece of me to our family unit. So I'm okay with him saying, yeah, I'm a bit Chinese. I don't know how the other kids react to it. And I have forewarned him that maybe they would argue or debate with him on this, but that it's absolutely fine that he believes that. It's okay. Why not? I mean, now that the borders are open in Asia, we will be going back at least once, if not twice a year. When we're back, we're immersed in our family lifestyle, um, which is going mostly out for Asian food. So um, we'll see how it develops. I mean, they're only six and nine, so they're learning about all of this at the moment. That's very interesting. Um, we'll definitely see how how this develops. Like I said, I also have a nine-year-old. I will also see where this develops, where they closely relate to. I'm sure at some point they might have spoken to a few people. Some point, uh, some kids in their teens get uh, confused. They want to belong. They suddenly might have an identity crisis or they may just cruise through. One never knows. They, where they feel strongly or what is interesting is in the fast evolving world that we are in right now identity is no more about just a place it is about much more so therefore i think we are evolving <laughs> this generation 
we are going to have some more different cultures coming out. For me, it's all about values and being very much open to all cultures and all religions. And I grew up in an environment that I was exposed to that. I look at my husband who grew up in Italy, you know, we're talking now 44 years ago, that was still quite closed. And he is considered the black sheep of the family for expatriating to China, of all places, and continuing his journey outside of Italy. You know, when I ask him sometimes, what made you do it? You come from a family that was so Italian focused and staying within Italy. You know, for me, it's mind boggling that my Italian family does not holiday outside of Italy in Hong Kong. I mean, I was forced to go on a plane in order to be able to travel and see the world on holiday. Nobody stayed in Hong Kong for their holidays. So there's a lot I'm learning also about staying within your own country. And it doesn't mean they're not open to other places. It's just wasn't part of how they grew up. Their mindset was there's already so much to see in Italy. Let's take advantage of seeing all of that. My mindset is there's so much to see in this world. <laughs> Let's take advantage of that. So he also grew up in a very different way compared to myself. But I still always question to him, what made you go all the way to China? How, how did you have that courage? It's amazing to see that he did. I'm always uh, proud that he did, because obviously that's the similarities that we have um, with our values. That's where you met. We met in Shanghai, yes. So now you mentioned values. That's actually a very important, um, I will call it concept, because values comes into the picture both personally and professionally. So now in the unit or the person that you are and, and the life that you live, and you had uh, European parents and you were living in Hong Kong. So obviously, like you rightly said, that was a life you knew, so you don't know what was it like, what would it have been if you were a European, European living in Europe. But what were the values that you grew up with? That is very interesting because generally in Asia, it's a we concept. And generally, I always say generally, because individuals can be different, families can be different. In the West, generally, it's the I concept, I as an individual. Sometimes, or even more than sometimes, in Asia, it's interdependence, which is more common. In the West, it is very much independent, especially the West-West. So again, Italy would be different from Germany because Italy is also more we, more family and more interdependence. And West, West, Germ this is like, for example, Germany, North Germany would be very different. It's the I concept, totally independent and so on. So having said that, your mother, you said, is French, your father, German. You grew up in Hong Kong, you married to an Italian. Now, as you, as you, let's say you forget about East and West, what are your values without judgment? I come from a very small family. So uh, I have my parents, I have my siblings, I have an aunt who was never married and who has become, who became like a second mother to us, and my grandparents. No other aunts and uncles, I have no cousins. So a very small family unit. So family has been always 
at the core of the value chain. There you're talking of your value system as a we and your core sense of a family. So that is typically used to be said East is like this and West is like this or West-West again. I differentiate very clearly because Italy and, and the Mediterranean, let me say the region, we're talking of uh, Spain, uh, Italy and, and so on. They are very family-oriented. Uh, families are extremely close-knit, very similar in that sense to Asian cultures. I used to see that very clearly when, for example, the, the way of working could be a little different between India and Italy, but because their sense of family, the value, that's the reason that I hold the core very, I try to see that also in the business area, because when you've got the core of a person, that they are also bringing it subconsciously to work, to the work culture. So I remember that uh, now when we transit to the work part, I'll give you an example. If I would interact with an Italian company, maybe I've just spoken to them once before, for example. But generally, the next interaction, they'll first ask me about me and my family. They will not similar, just quickly jump to work. And that would be very different. Nobody in Germany is going to ask me about me and my family. They would come immediately to the task at hand and uh, time would be very, very diligently looked at one minute, not too late. And in Italy, I could reach there or they can also reach 15 minutes late and just quaff it off with a cup of coffee. Primarily, the focus is the person is a person good, all is in place, feeling good. So the feel factor I find um, runs a similar thread in the Mediterranean and um, Asian, the feel good, which again, because of the so much evolution happening in the last decade, movement back and forth between cultures and people, that is also changing. So in Asia also, it could be developing another way, but traditionally this was it. So I have no idea what the next decade is going to hold and where the fusions and um, what comes out of these waves is going to leave. It's going to be an interesting watch. Now, many foreigners assume uh, you lived alone, like you said, you were born and brought up in, in Hong Kong, and um, and then you moved to Shanghai for work when you came back from, I believe, from Duke's University in US. Then you moved to Shanghai. So how similar or dissimilar are Hong Kong and Shanghai? Because, again, if I'm sitting here or from another place in the world, I would generally say, or a lot of people would say, okay, they are both there in that part of the world. They are similar. How similar and how dissimilar are they? No, they're very different. So first of all, the Hong Kong Chinese are very different from the mainland Chinese. Hong Kong Chinese have grown up in a colonial era. They've had a lot of Western influence. And I would say I'm a bit biased in saying this because how I'm saying it is not really what I want to entail, but there is a maturity level with the Hong Kong Chinese in terms of how they communicate and how they do business with Westerners, with the West, right? And that's the British influence that came in. The mainland Chinese for me is a little bit wild, wild West. 
not very many foreigners have gone into China to create a daily impact that affects their maturity level in terms of doing business with the West. So when I do business with people based in Hong Kong, Hong Kong Chinese, it's very similar in my mind to how I would do business with the Brits in the UK, with the Americans in the US, etc., because of this colonial influence. I mean, I have to give you a bit of context with 20, how it was 20 years ago when I first arrived in Shanghai and how it is today, because there's been a complete evolution also in that. When I first arrived in Shanghai, I did not have a culture shock because I still ate Chinese food. Okay, it wasn't Cantonese food anymore. It was Shanghainese food, which is oilier. So you kind of have to adapt yourself to that. But I would say the biggest shock for me was the efficiency. I was expecting Shanghai to be as efficient on a day-to-day basis, whether on a personal perspective or a professional perspective, as efficient as when you do things in Hong Kong. And I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. I was getting my Wi-Fi installed when I first moved in Shanghai in my apartment. It took three hours. Now in Hong Kong, when you were installing Wi-Fi, within 20 minutes, your Wi-Fi was up and running. So to have somebody in my house for three hours, I just didn't understand it. The guy looked clueless about what he was doing. And ultimately, me, who was not a techie whatsoever, realized that he had forgotten to put the cable, because back in those days, I'm showing my age now, back in those days, it wasn't uh, wireless. We had cables. I had forgotten to put the cable into my laptop. And the minute that I had put it in the laptop, the Wi-Fi worked. But he couldn't come up with the solution. And I just thought, my God, we've wasted three hours here. Wasted my entire weekend. And this is just a very simple example. I find that the Hong Kong Chinese have been taught over the years to think like Westerners and to think outside of the box. In mainland China, and I still believe this today, the mainland Chinese have an educational system where you are stuck in a box and you are not always allowed to think outside of the box. So they are probably not the best problem solvers in the world. If something occurs and they it's not a typical solution that fits inside the box, they have difficulty of discovering what that solution will be. It's even still today occurs. But of course, from an efficiency perspective, China has just digitalized itself to the point where I think in a lot of aspects on a day-to-day basis, it is more efficient than any other country in the world. In terms of having your telephone and having WeChat and your WeChat being able to be your wallet and your life and having that on on your phone and being able to do everything with that. Now, of course, the other question is safety and, and other issues, but from an efficiency point of view, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Nobody carries a wallet around in China anymore. They might carry something on the back of their phone with their ID card, and that's it. They don't even have credit cards. Nobody walks around with cash. It is not a cash civilization anymore. It's all digitalized online. And moving on from that is there is a much bigger sense of maturity that has developed over the last 20 years that matches that with with Hong Kong as well. But the whole thinking outside of the box and and finding solutions, the problem-solving aspects is still somewhere where I think they need to 
improve on. But I think a lot of that stems from the educational system in itself. When you say it stems from the educational system itself, what would that mean? The curriculum. So if you look at the Chinese curriculum, you know, it's still a communist regime. So I think they still want to have control over the people and you are taught what you are taught. Recently, about 18 months ago, they removed English from the curriculum. So preventing people from being able to, preventing kids from being able to learn English, right? I believe now it's slowly coming back because I think they're realizing that it's preventing a good portion of the workforce to not be able to speak English and do international business, right? You have to realize there's still this Chinese government that's controlling everything and that is limiting people on certain aspects. Uh, And of course, this is why a lot of the wealthy Chinese, if they have the money, they do send their kids to boarding schools and to universities abroad to get that Western mindset um, and that different perspective on life. True. And uh, you have worked with more than 750 odd uh, international companies. Question is, what is the biggest or what are the biggest misconceptions that Western people have when they come to that part of the world, mainly China? I think a couple of misconceptions happen today, which is, again, there's been an evolution on this. I think today the issues are things in China have gotten a lot simpler in order, in terms of doing business. However, foreigners still have a sense of fear of doing business in China, either because they don't speak the language, they don't understand the culture, or there is this whole media concept of the Chinese will cheat you. Anybody in this world can cheat you. Doesn't mean that they're Chinese, that they're going to cheat you more than somebody who's in the UK or somewhere else. That gets on my nerves a little bit because it's not true. I have more stories of Westerners in China cheating people than I have of Chinese cheating people. That's interesting. There's been a, there's been an evolution. Over the last 20 years, it has become tremendously easier for foreign investors to invest in China. I always say there's two types of investors, ones who wing it and they say, we have to be in China, so we're going to wing it and we're open to making mistakes. Love those guys, but their budget is not necessarily high enough for them to fix mistakes. But then you have the other side where you have those investors that are in a paralysis mode and just cannot even hit green light on their China projects because of fear, because of doubt. They, they just won't do it. You do need to have a mixture of both in order to be able to get into China. You should wing it by all means, because I always say that China is ahead of the game and the the country is constantly changing itself. And sometimes there's not even precedent for it. You don't even have what they're doing in other countries in the world. So you're trying things out for the first time and you don't have any example to show off from other countries, which is phenomenal. It means there's opportunity for everybody. So you should wing it, but try and limit your mistakes by having a bit of paralysis and checking that the investment you're making is correct, right? Making sure that you take care of how you're going in, thinking about problems that might arise, forecasting, creating scenario developments. I mean, there are certain things in the last three years we could never have predicted. The lockdowns in 2022, who would have guessed something like that would have ever occurred? But it did. And, you know, you just have to be prepared for moments like that. So, yeah, I think those are sort of the perceptions that people have is I'm going to get cheated on, which really aggravates me. 
because you will only get cheated on if you leave the door open to be cheated on. If you protect your business and you protect your business model and your plan, you'll be fine, right? And I always say people make the assumption also that they can do all of all of this on their own. When you go to China, you can't do things on your own. You need to develop an ecosystem of people who can support you, help you. And that needs to be a mixture of foreigners as well as Chinese people. I op- I'm the first person to admit I've been doing business in China for 20 years, plus five years on the sidelines with my dad as I started kind of getting trained into what he was doing. I'm still a foreigner in China. I will never know everything about the market. I didn't study there. I don't have a local network like my team who have were born there, trained there, have a network of friends and colleagues. They know the system inside and out. I will never know it inside and out like they do. And I admit it. And that just means I need help. I need people to support me and to help me grow and scale and be successful, right? I'm there because I, there's an opportunity for me to be there. I love it. I'm passionate about the place, love the culture, love the food, love the people. But I also have to admit my limitations, right? I don't have the same perspective about, of Hong Kong because I was born there, lived it, breathed it for the majority of my life. I don't have that same experience in, in China. So it's admitting where your limits are uh, as well and what you are capable of doing and delegating then to those who can help. And how is diversity? Diversity and inclusion are uh, two words which are being used internationally. They are right now really uh, pretty much in your face. How is that practiced in China? I think it depends where you are. So China is enormous, right? It's a patchwork quilt of cultures, religions, um, and dialects. So I'm the most familiar with Shanghai, and Shanghai, quite frankly, is the most mature city in all of China. You can also match it up with Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Hangzhou, even a couple of the tier two cities. But it's a pretty mature city. It's not like in Europe, and now I've got a little bit of experience of being in Europe. In Europe, they're really pushing for this what is it? Equality, inclusion, diversity. In China, it's slow progress. You know, you still don't have so many women on boards of directors, but there's also not a push to put them in. There's no laws that are coming about that you have to have a certain quota of female against males. But I think people are realizing that you do sort of need a balance. I learned that on the job. I actually started off my business as being female centric. I only hired women. And back in those days, the reason I only hired women is because I felt that no man that I would hire would ever listen to me. Because back in those days, the society was that the male was more domineering than the female. On top of it, I was a foreigner. So I just had the impression no, but no male would listen to me, would take my orders. They would just seclude themselves until... I actually had my right-hand person in Shanghai say to me one day, Christina, there are too many, there's too much female hormones. We need to have a balance. We need some men to come in to balance this attitude. And she was absolutely right. It 
was needed. And she basically had the initiative to hire new male graduates that could be molded, that needed to be trained, that would listen and, and want to be trained by older, older women. And it worked beautifully. We then had a balance building up within the company of female male employees. And we just grew it like that, just naturally to have this balancing act. But I'm still of the belief that at a moment in time, if we need to recruit somebody, we recruit the best individual that at that moment in time is in our pool of candidates. That should be our philosophy. Um, you want to hire the best for your team that will also be the right fit for your team. Of course, again, with that idea of balance between between the sexes there, but I, I still maintain the philosophy, we hire the best, we hire the right fit. We want long-term people within our organization. Within other organizations, I can't really say because I've never really, I've always worked for my family business. So, I mean, if I look at my clients, I think there is a tendency to hire people of a certain sex based on the job. You will always find more women in accounting roles than you will find men. Don't ask me why. It's just the tendency I see. However, having said that, if you have a hierarchy in finance, you will find more men in finance manager roles than women. And I think that's because of the domineering aspect. If you look at sales roles, the tendency is to find, uh, let me put it another way. I think it depends on the industry and the sector you're in. If it's service, you might find more women than if you are in product categories, you might find more men. So there is still this um, discrepancy about what business you're in, what industry you're in, what sector you're in, and whether it's better to have a man or a woman uh, be included. But I do see change happening. It's just taking much, it's not being as pushed as it is here in Europe. And here in Europe, I feel it's being pushed too fast, too dramatically, that there's no balance. And, and I see this, you know, in China, they're just taking their time with the concepts and the attitudes around it. Interesting. One more question related to that, or many more, actually. In the You mentioned the communist regime, and how does business flourish in that atmosphere? So my father has the most perfect saying for this. China is communist, but the people are capitalist. Everybody wants to make money. <laughs> okay. So... When you're doing business, you're no longer in a communist regime. You're in a capitalist regime. And everybody is out to make profit. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day business, so I even want to say on a personal perspective, on a personal and business perspective, I don't feel communism. I feel Shanghai is, or China is, open like any other jurisdiction. Now, do I go off? and talk badly about the Chinese government in China? No, I never would. There are certain limitations you have to realize. Don't go blabbering on about whether you hate China, the people in China, because people do hear and people do listen. So be careful, right? Have common sense to what you're doing when you're in the territory. Respect the regime respect the people that are following that regime or that believe in that regime. You know, I came to China for an opportunity. 
to make money for our family business. And so when I meet business people, we all have the same goal. We're there to make money and to be profitable. And the discussion is around how can we create a win-win situation that we both achieve this, right? So yeah, I, I, my dad's statement, which he said 20 years ago to me, I believe still holds true today. It's a communist regime. The people, the businesses are capitalistic. Everybody is out to make a profit. I feel the, the media portrays the ugliness a lot of the time versus the opportunities. Actually, that's their job, because how do you gain the TRPs? Uh, the ordinary, in my opinion, is less televised or spoken about in social media. It will not stop you in your tracks. There are two things which will stop you in your tracks and look or hear. And that is either something which is absolutely admirable or something totally de decrepit. So... That's what, unfortunately, more and more decrepit is coming into the picture. <laughs> so and that, that's what the world is feeding on. So now you have media. Now special houses are coming in for feel good because there's been so much of this raising mark, focusing on mark. This is where I, I also wanted to add one point, just, just from a personal perspective. The media has impacted, you know, I've, I've lived in Europe only now for three years, almost four, three and a half years. Uh, so I'm learning. I'm learning about European life and lifestyle and day-to-day. -day. But one thing that comes up whenever I tell people my story is, Christina, my goodness me, how could your parents stay in Hong Kong? Why would they stay in Hong Kong? What would even come to their minds to retire in Hong Kong? And I've learned now, when I get these questions, the first question as I ask, I ask is, have you ever been? Have you ever traveled there? Have you actually walked in the streets of Hong Kong? Have you smelt it? Have you met the people? In 95% of the times, the answer is no, I've never been. And now I'm, I get brash and I say, please don't put your judgment on my parents when you've never even been there. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't listen only to the media and the decrepit, right? The bad and the ugly, if you've never gone. And this is something I instill in my children, right? Don't judge a book by its cover until you've tasted it, tried it, been there. And they get taken aback a little bit. And I said, please don't judge my parents. You don't know their lifestyle. You don't know their day-to-day. -day. The reason they've stayed is because life for them is a lot easier in Hong Kong than it would be if they would go back to Germany or go back to France a lot easier. And I just want to mention this to people. I totally get it. COVID has put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths in relation to China and Hong Kong, particularly when they've seen the lockdowns, when they've seen the borders being shut, families being separated, the, the mental trauma it has caused for a lot of people, including myself. It's been really hard. I, I understand that. But now the borders are open and life is back to normal. And trust me, I was there in February and life is back to normal, like it was pre-COVID, which is amazing. And the energy and the positive energy that you feel in Hong Kong or China is so much grander than what you feel in Europe. And I miss it tremendously, tremendously. I miss that energy. Smile on people's faces. 
if I was going to talk badly about Europe, which I don't want to, but I will now because I've had so much negativity about Hong Kong and China and my home, is you walk around Europe, everybody's miserable. Everybody's depressed. People aren't happy with their lives. When you have a social gathering, it's more about talking bad than talking good. It gets me down. And I'm a pretty positive person in many instances. And this is one of the reasons why I have actually created a, a friendship circle of people who've lived in Asia because we're like-minded. We've shared the same experiences. We have the same attitude. And that's helped me a lot in terms of um, creating friends and managing friends and, and not being depressed all the time, but having things to look forward to. It's because of these friends who've lived in Asia, not necessarily Hong Kong and China, although the majority have, but also if they've lived in Japan, Philippines, Thailand, they have grown to have a different mindset, expatriate mindset, if you will, uh, open to everything. That was interesting. One point you mentioned, and it would be very nice for you to bring up that point. That would be actually very useful. You mentioned that your parents, uh, they find it easier to live in Hong Kong than if they would have ever lived in, in uh, France and Germany. How would their lives be easier there? Or their lives are obviously easier, you mentioned. How? Just can you expand? So I think a couple of things. One is they've lived more than half of their lives in Hong Kong. So it is home for them. They've got their doctor's network. They've got, you know, they've got this network of people they know that they would have to start from scratch if they would go back to Germany or France. And I think that's really important. My parents are now in their 80s. What I see as important is live in help. There is in Asia this connotation of live in help, which my God is so useful. And I miss it daily. <laughs> I'm a big believer in... I can't do everything myself. It would be lovely to have a support system. In Europe, you don't have this support system. My parents have a full-time live-in help who prepares their medication in the morning, helps them cook, helps them clean. Like I said, they're getting in their 80s. I'm very fortunate to have two extremely fit parents, but it doesn't mean that they haven't slowed down and they do need help and they've got it and it's affordable. Most importantly, it's affordable help. Then another is public transportation. Public transportation in Asia is amazing. If at any point in time, one of my parents can't drive, they can still get around. And it's affordable public transportation. In Europe, where do you see taxis roaming around? Okay, if you're in Munich, maybe. If you're in Frankfurt, maybe. If you're in a village in Germany, do you see taxis roaming around that you can just hail off of the street? You have to call, make an appointment. It's not as simple. So... I think also another thing is, and, and I also want to highlight my parents, and this is the sad part of being expatriates, is 80% of their friends have left Hong Kong, right? They have retired and relocated to their home jurisdictions or wherever else for retirement purposes. So it's not that they stayed because of a friendship circle. They've stayed because of the convenience of living there. But I also love my dad's attitude. Hong Kong is a business place and he will forever be a business person. And even at the age of 80, he still goes to Rotary Club meetings, goes to different chambers of commerce meetings to meet the youth. And he now has a group of friends that are in their 50s, right, who keep him young. And I love it. It keeps him fit. It keeps his mind working. 
he's a bit like a networker, bringing people together. It's what he's done his whole life and he continues to do it. So I'm very lucky that my parents have decided to stay. I'm very lucky that they've been afforded the ability to stay and that they can take advantage of that lifestyle, which I don't think they would have in Europe. And I, I've seen friends who live here and whose parents are struggling, are just struggling. So I think they did it the right way. Now, do they want to be buried in Hong Kong? No, they have no idea where they want to be buried. But that's the next step. And that's the difficulty of being expatriates. Where do you actually want to be? But thankfully, we haven't crossed that bridge. But it is a dilemma now that we're, we're having discussions around which obviously is a bit depressing, but they don't know where they want to be. That's the next step. What is the thought that you would like to leave the audience with? I mean, open your minds. COVID showed me that a lot of people closed their minds during this period and created negativity against a lot of cultures, particularly towards the Chinese and everything that happened in Wuhan. If I can give anybody a tip, it's, or, or leave you with a quote, is be open-minded. Um, have a sense of adventure. Be positive about life. We are living in an extremely interesting world where there are a mesh of cultures, a fusion of cultures. I find it fascinating talking to my own children now and the kids that they're meeting and where they're from and how their parents got together. I love it. I love this multicultural environment and it just inspires me and motivates me, brings me happiness because I came from that environment. I think I say all of this because at times I did feel lonely back in the day and now to be in an environment where there's so many of us, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. On that note, thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your journey was very interesting actually hearing different it was like a mosaic so one is left with a mosaic to sort of juggle around and think about thank you so much and i wish you all the best for your journey thank you so much that my dear listeners is the journey of christina she's of european descent but having been born and brought up in Hong Kong, she relates more to that part of the world. She's living life in a fusion of cultures between the East and the West. Diversity has many faces, and this kind of life is one of them. In times to come, the world will see more and more of third culture and multicultural individuals, given the mobility of the age we live in and the dissolving of physical borders. Are you a third culture individual? What has your experience been? Do write in and share. Thank you for listening to the series between the East and the West. Do subscribe to the channels mentioned on the site. In case, of course, you liked what you heard. I am Meenu Gupta, the host of the series. And I'll be looking forward to your comments. We love feedback. Thank you once again. Namaste and bye-bye.